considering creation this morning. The question of what if we weren't, what if we were all the creation of a God who chose to create out of free will and delight? What if it weren't random and without purpose? I probably wanted to spend so much time on creation because, um, to borrow a line from a, a theologian named David Kelsey, he, he says, our theology of creation does very little work. And w- w- what he means to say, what I mean by that, is that to believe that we are created is a major belief. That's saying something. I opened the service talking um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek about the impact of, of being the, the child of my dad. But who we, who we are created by has an enormous impact on who we are. The therapists in the room can testify to this, that the relationships with our parents or the lack of those relationships can hardly be overstated. Who we were created by is a big deal. And to say that we were created, is a, it's saying, it says that's saying something. It's, just, it's true of us biologically, it's true of us theologically. But our creation theology does very little work, and I think this is largely res- the result of the last 200 years of a very, very polarizing debate on the book of Genesis that has kind of ostracized our understanding of what it means to be created. Genesis is maybe the most controversial of books to approach, though I, don't, I really don't think it should be. I don't know if any of you saw the debate, the, 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 the fame of the debate by Ken Ham and Bill Nye. Did you catch this? Ken Ham is the, um, he's, he's the guy who's responsible for the, the museum in Kentucky dedicated to the, the idea that the earth is 6,000 years old. And so he represented that view, which is the, kind of the most literal approach to Genesis that you can take. Uh, and on the other side, there was Bill Nye, who... Um, you know, presented scientific evidence and dismisses gen- the Genesis account out of hand, more or less. And these seem like our two options. You've got to go whole hog one way or the other. And so it leaves us with a pretty weak creation theology. So this morning, we consider the idea that the earth and all that is in it was created by God out of free joy and delight. That is a radical idea. It was a radical idea for Israel at the time And it is no less radical in 2017. So let's finish hearing the account in Genesis, our second lesson. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing, and everything that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth, God said. See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made and indeed, 
It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. We've heard the entire opening chapter of the Bible this morning. But if you turn to it with the wrong questions, you'll be sorely disappointed by its answers. If you ask, how was there light on the second day when the sun, moon, and stars weren't made till the fourth day? Or how was there time for dinosaurs to exist and go extinct? Or how did kangaroos get to Australia if they started in the Garden of Eden? I have heard all of these questions legitimately debated as if the entire kingdom of God rested on whether we could prove that kangaroos somehow got to Australia. And if these are your questions, you will leave Genesis rolling your eyes, finding its answers insufficient. But if you are like me, like the authors of Genesis, the more pressing question that you ask when you come to church or come to scripture is, who are my people? Where do I belong? Why am I here? And these are the questions that the authors of Genesis are asking. It is not fair to impose our own questions or purposes on a text if the authors had no intention of answering those questions or pursuing those purposes. There is inviolable and profound truth in the creation story in Genesis, but we won't get at it by dealing in timelines and biology. It will have to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Genesis records not the chronology of history, but the story of God's people wrestling with the questions of their identity and God's. It is a collection of story that lets us in on Israel's wrestling with God and by God's spirit invites us to wrestle as well. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. Two points about the context of Genesis, three points about creation to take into your summer. Context point one. Genesis is written by a few different authors starting in the 10th century BC, edited up through the 4th or 5th century BC. This is sort of the most widely accepted timeline for the writing of Genesis. We don't know, we don't know exactly when the stories first began to be told. There is a great oral tradition in Israel that over time gets written down in bits and pieces, stories that are passed down from who knows how far back. Abraham, who knows Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Mosaic tradition is passed down orally and in, and, and, and in bits and pieces for hundreds of years. And in the 10th century, an author gets serious about writing some of this stuff down. But Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch, the, four, the, the five opening books of the Bible, are written largely by four authors and then a whole team of, um, uh, of people that edited and worked with these stories and put them together as they wrestled with who the people of God were and what God was doing in their midst. Genesis was written down uh, yeah, by four primary authors, but with many edits. Uh, 
And, and, and this seems really complicated, but I don't, I don't think it's really that complicated. Imagine if Pastor Bob, who is in Florida um, today, Bob is the, the, the senior pastor um, at Grace. He's in Florida this Sunday. But you can imagine if him and I wrote a letter or the story of Grace Chicago together. And those of you who have heard us speak or have read some of what we write, you'd be able to look at that and pretty quickly say, here's what Bob wrote and here's what Caleb wrote. And then we would turn to the consistory, the leadership, and Kathy would throw in a phrase, and Michael Demray would throw in a few phrases, and you'd be able to piece together who contributed it to this letter. And by the end of the process, it would be a better letter than if either of us just told the story or wrote the thing in the first place. And the timeline is longer and bigger, but the process isn't so different for how Genesis came to be constructed. And I think it's an important point because um, because the questions that the authors are asking and wrestling with are relevant when we take up these words and read them in a community of people asking the same questions. Genesis wasn't written down when, when, when Moses was at the top of a mountain and God sort of pulled back a curtain and said, Moses, I want to tell you what happened the first seven days where time existed. Um, and if we approach it with that understanding, we end up asking a very different set of questions. And a set of questions that I, I think well, we end up missing the point. These are stories that tell us about who we are and why we exist. They're a collection of writings by the people of God. Context point two. The heart of the Old Testament is Exodus 1 through 18. This is the story of the Passover and Exodus, the escape through the Red Sea, uh, followed by getting to Mount Sinai, the covenant that's given to Moses, and the Ten Commandments. That's the heart of the Old Testament. When you read the rest of the Old Testament, there are a ton of references to Exodus 1 through 18. I think there are like two to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Exodus 1 through 18 is the pivot point for all of Israel's history and for the Old Testament. Um, it's not so unlike, uh, you know, I think a parallel would be as Exodus 1 through 18 is to Israel, so the Revolutionary War sort of is to the United States history. Um, there's a history before that, and there's a history after that, but something happened in those years of the Revolutionary War, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights um, that sort of give the United States, like people, an identity uh, in the United States, right? Um, and so there's a history before it, but that history is colored by what's going to come. And the history that follows the Revolutionary War always kind of looks back to it. Every election cycle, we go through this. What, what did the forefathers want? What did the Constitution mean? What is the intent of the Bill of Rights? All of our conversations kind of revolve around that pivot point in history. And this is the same way for Israel Something happens to them when they are freed from slavery in Egypt. That is their story. And after that event, they're a people in a way that they weren't beforehand. So, so why, why am I saying this all? I'm saying this because um, when we read Genesis, we have to understand that it's an introduction to Exodus. Genesis 12 through 50, um, I'm going to preach on Genesis probably five or six times this summer, which is kind of why I'm doing this. But um, Genesis 12 through 50 is the story of the patriarchs. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And Joseph ends up in Egypt, sets up the story for the Exodus. Um, all the stuff that precedes that, 12 through 50, is the story of how did we come to be a people in the first place? What's our story as a, as, as a nation and a people? 
And so you get the story of the patriarchs. Genesis 1 through 11, which is what we're interested in this morning, is, um, is almost preamble to that introduction. And its scope is universal and cosmic. This is the story of how all the plants and wildlife, how everything came into being in Genesis 1 and 2. It's how everything ended up so messed up in Genesis 3. Uh, Genesis 6, we get the story of, of, of Noah's Ark, which is, again, a story that has the entire scope of humanity in its eyes. And then we get the story of the Tower of Babel, which is another story that, that, that explains something universal about how all these languages and tribes and countries came to be their particular tribes and countries. And then you get the story of Abraham and the history of the, the, the specific history of Israel. Um, so those are my two points of context. Um, and I just think those are important things to keep in mind as we approach Genesis, to understand the origin sort of of some of the intent of what's going on here. Israel experiences something in Exodus, a freedom, similar to what Christians point to in Christ, right? All the writings in the New Testament flow out of the event of what we've experienced in Christ. Um, and in the same way, um, Exodus 1 through 18 functions that way um, for, for Israel, and so it's kind of in that light that I want to just turn to three thoughts, three observations from this creation story um, that are unique and that I think make a real difference. The first is this. Before there was original sin, there was original goodness. Original goodness predates original sin in the, in the biblical timeline. If you grew up in a church, you, you're probably familiar with this phrase, original sin. It's, it, the story of, of that is going to come in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fall by giving in uh, to the temptations of the snake that tells them to eat the fruit even though God said not to. And the doctrine of original sin is what points us to confession. It reminds us that we're broken and in need of a Savior, that all people are in need of a savior and then indeed all of creation groans for a savior to make all things new. Original sin is an important doctrine. It's, it's an important thing to remember. Um, but it's predated by our original goodness. And I think the church is quick to point to our original sin and slow to point to our original goodness. Jesus spends some time reminding people of their brokenness. The haughty and proud, Jesus is pretty straightforward with about their brokenness and need for a savior. I didn't come to help the well. I came for those who know they need. So occasionally he will remind people of their brokenness when they aren't aware of it. But more often Jesus spends his time seeing the goodness in people and restoring it, spending his time with people who are convinced of their brokenness. And he spends time speaking about their, uh, restoring their goodness in them. The claim that God saw all things and said that they were good and very good is a unique claim, both for ancient Israel and for us today. Um, it would have been a unique claim for Israel because the, the creation myths that Israel was familiar with were from Mesopotamia and Egypt and Babylon. And the creation of human beings in those narratives was that, um, was that the gods um, 
that humanity was created out of conflict between the gods. And so there was violence that erupted between the gods and it was out of this violence and humans were sort of a byproduct of all of this energy and violence of the gods competing against one another. And in the most popular of those creation myths, Enuma Elish, the story goes that human beings were created as sort of soldiers or slaves to help serve one of the gods in the battle against another gods. And so human beings are byproducts or slaves. Those are the creation narratives that would have been familiar to the Israelites and to the authors of Genesis. But something about that account didn't jive with their experience of a God who had saved them from slavery. They include some of the language of these original creation myths, but their experience with the God who had saved them from Egypt didn't jive with those accounts that viewed humanity as a byproduct of war or as a species created to be slaves. The living God who had rescued Israel takes delight in creation. The God who had called Israel to be a blessing to all creation must have created all things good. God creates the world and he sees it and he says it is very good. And I think this is unique in light of modern accounts of the universe as well. Modern accounts, um, you know, I was thinking about, like there are all these really cut and dry creation myths that, that, that we can point to in, in history. And I was thinking, what are, what, are, what, are the, what are the accounts of creation today about how things came into being? There is sort of the agnostic view, sort of, we don't know. We don't know how things came into being, and maybe we can't know, and it's sort of up to each person on their own to make meaning. Or there's, a, you know, um, I was listening to the, a podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and um, who's, of course, an astrophysicist, talking about, um, you know, science has figured out a lot, but it hasn't figured out everything. But eventually, there will be an answer to all of these mysteries. There will be a scientific explanation for everything. And so everything can be explained in terms of the physical universe and there's nothing beyond it. And so that's a perspective. Or, 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 or there's sort of the deist approach, which was popular you know, um, a couple hundred years ago more when Isaac Newton kind of put the laws of physics forward and said that there was a watchmaker God that that set up the watch and is just watching it tick, but has no interest in being involved with it. And, and to each of these accounts, I think the Christian account of creation, of a God who looks and sees and who creates a world with intention and delight and purpose and says it is very good. That's a unique account of creation. God looks at us. God looks at you and just says you are good. Original sin gets in the way of our goodness, but it doesn't negate it. Well, I, I used to teach PE. I lived in California, and the kids called me Coach Caleb. And I taught K through eight. And almost every day there was a kindergartner named Haley who was, um, who was short and one of the slowest kids in the class and a little overweight but she was super cute and every day she would come up to, almost every day she would come up to me and she would say, Coach Caleb, I'm here. And I would say, I see you, Haley. And someday she would come up to me and she would say, Coach Caleb, do you like my dress? 
and all, there was a school uniform. So all the kids wore the exact same dress, right? And Haley's usually had some spaghetti or something on it. And they, all the kids had the exact same dress. But she would come up to me and she would say, Coach Caleb, do you like my dress? And I would say, I love your dress, Haley. You're beautiful. And she would just stand there and beam. And I love thinking about Haley. And sometimes I feel like her. And I feel like all of us were made with these questions. Do you see me? Am I good enough? Am I beautiful? And creation reminds us that before there was original sin, there was original goodness, a God that says, I see you and you're very good. I see you and you're very good. The second point is that we were made for Sabbath. That is, you were made to share in the life of God. The seventh day of creation is not Sabbath because God got tired, because he ran out of things to do, or because seven was a magical number and they just wanted to get there. And Sabbath isn't a day off in order to make the next six days more productive. It doesn't have a goal beyond itself. Sabbath is rest with God, and that's what we're made for. It isn't even self-care in order for anything. It is the goal. It is the point. It is what all six days lead up to. Sabbath is the reminder that you cannot do anything to add or to take away from your worth. Abraham Heschel says this, there is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space the acquisition of things of space becomes our sole concern, end quote. We were made for this realm of time where the goal is simply to be, to be exactly who we were made to be. It's not another Christian discipline to put on your checklist. It is the peace that comes from being and from knowing that God sees you and God says, very good. And you don't have to produce a thing to get there. Last point, what God creates, God values. This is a rather academic quote from David Kelsey. Depth of intimacy correlates directly with with depth, with the depth of otherness. Depth of intimacy correlates directly with the depth of otherness. The more genuine the otherness, the deeper the possibility of intimacy. The deeper the intimacy, the more the otherness of the other is acknowledged, respected, and fostered. Um, It's kind of confusing language, but it's a It's a really simple truth that I'm sure all of you have experienced in a relationship, in a friendship with a parent or a spouse. Um, 
Friendship recognizes who the other person is and values that. The best friends are the friends that know you in sometimes ways that you don't even know yourself. They're the friends that remind you of who you are and who bring out the best of who you are. It's the best of all relationships and friendships or in parents who bring out the best in their kids or in spouses who bring out the best in their spouses who don't quash their individuality by forcing them to become someone other than who they were created to be but who bring out their otherness. Depth of intimacy is related to depth of otherness. And this is true in, in, in God's role as creator, that he creates something that's other than him and he delights in that otherness, in that particularity, in, 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 in the oak tree and the willow and the maple and each of them being unique in their own ways. God creates in such diversity of color and function and beauty and what God creates God values, and we were given dominion over creation, not in order to squash its uniqueness and make it all subservient to a specific goal, but to steward it in its particularity, to allow each person that we meet to be who they were made to be, not who we want them to be. When we interact with people, our task as Christians is not to squash their individuality and make them become just like us but to allow their flourishing by encouraging what makes them uniquely them. By having the same vision towards others that God had when he saw each person and said, very good, very good. What God creates, God values. And if he wanted us to all be alike, he could have done that. He created us each differently and in particular ways. And God values that particularity. And we need to remember that when we're interacting with people. And Christians have forgotten that throughout history. We've wanted people to look exactly like us. But God creates in a particular way. And what God creates, God values. It's hot in here. Let me close. It's the beginning of summer. And it feels like the perfect time to preach on creation. The heart of January might yield a really different sermon. But now in June, in summer's opening act, and the days are long, and the sun is hot, and the lake is bright and blue, and there's grass to sit on, and the wind doesn't chill, those things are the best sermons on creation. And I hope you get to enjoy them today. June in Chicago makes even the least religious among us say amen. But as you go through your summer, Every time you take in a sunset or a full moon reflecting on the lake, as you take it in, remember these three things. That there is an original goodness that God saw. And we can see that in others and call it out in them. Remember that you were made not to produce but to be. And remember that your neighbor was too. And that what God creates, God values. Will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks for the diversity of your creation and we lament when that diversity is torn down. We lament the lives that have been lost this week to violence, 
And we pray that your kingdom would come and that your new creation would flourish here in Chicago. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.